the lie that poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm an India. And we are your theory doctors. Hello. Hi there. Welcome back. We've had a bit of a longish break for Christmas. Yep. You disappeared. I disappeared. And yes, and now you're back. Now I'm back. Did you have a good holiday? I did. Did you have a good holiday? No, it's good, thank you. It's 2018. It is 2018. Some of the things we wish might have changed in 2017 are still going strong like the Trump presidency we've had two years of state of the theory and we haven't solved everything yet we haven't yeah so we've had some we've got some public engagement yes but I think impact is still yeah still lacking I haven't seen a policy change occur citing state yes. of the theory no it'll happen though <laughs> <laughs> okay so what are we talking about today Today, uh, we are talking about um, striking, strikes, labor unions, trade unions. We have the internationality in the background. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the reason why we're talking about the strike, about strike action and labor and unions specifically, is that in the sector in which we work, there is an upcoming industrial action, uh, which is... In the UK. In the UK, which is certainly unprecedented in scale, in terms of uh, the the union that represents us, University and College Union, UCU, uh, have announced 14 days of strike action, which is far more than anything we've ever done, and it's about proposed change to the pensions, uh, to the pensions that us academics... Uh, the pension scheme as it is at the moment is being uh, is being changed, is being transformed. Uh, at the moment, it is what what we call a defined benefit scheme. In other words, we have there's a, a complicated set of calculations which lead to a certain amount per month that we can expect that we are guaranteed to get based on how long we've worked and what our average income was. Uh, and we are moving from apparently we are being forced to move from a defined benefit to a defined contribution scheme where uh, we save for as long as we work and depending on how much we save that money gets put on the stock market and all the risk of investment lies entirely on us as individuals depending on how our individual pension pot does we could get some pension we could get a good amount of pension we could get no pension at all yeah, it can't, it, it's a, a little bit like how 401k yeah. works um, yeah. in the U.S. Certainly, I mean, the, the, as an American, the idea of having a pension and not working, mm -hmm. f you know, for the state is is a really bizarre thing. I didn't really mm -hmm. understand mm -hmm. that I could even have a pension when I first started working, yeah. as well as the idea of an mm -hmm. academic yes. trade union. Yeah. There is no, no. academic mm -hmm. trade union in the U.S., and one of, one of the kind of... Uh, interesting movements in the United States is that adjuncts yeah. at various universities in the U.S. Mm. have started to try mm. to form unions um, in a context where there aren't academic yeah. trade unions in any formal mm. capacity. I, th I think that the point about the American pension system being different is, is really important. I think there are two responses to that. One is, and I'm talking specifically about 
academics with permanent jobs, tenured academics. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, firstly, the the pay scale for tenured academics is higher in, in America than it is here. Yep, generally speaking. Generally speaking. Um, which obviously adds to the, the, the difference in, in terms, or, or complicates the difference in terms of pensions. The other thing is, it seems to me that there is, it's a very different thing to be in a context where an individualized private pension pot is the norm from the system that we have in Britain where there is a kind of collectivized pension scheme. Uh, I think financial literacy is probably higher in America, certainly among, among uh, people who have individualized pension pots. The, the, the resources that you might have access to in terms of how best to manage, individually manage that pension pot, I think are greater than they are here. I certainly would have no idea what to do uh, if, when I get given, you know, this is your pension pot, this is your money, manage it how you will. And think there's a, that, that is a, a significant change. Uh, in other words, we are not just moving to an Americanized system, we are moving to an Americanized system without any of the supporting infrastructure behind it. Yes, I mean, some of that supporting infrastructure will arrive because, yes. of course, it, it, it all exists to make money. Yes. So one of the reasons yeah. it is privatized yes. is because yes. there are all of these financial corporations yes. and organizations that exist yes. purely to help you manage your yes. private money in the yeah. U.S. And, and that is not yeah. far off here. Yeah. Um, but, of course, we do have in the U.S., right, state pensions are, are still really good. Yeah. So if you do work for the government... Yeah. Um, public school teachers, police officers, um, other service workers, mm. if you, you know, any any sort of working for any mm. of the government departments, mm. you have a pension in the, the more traditional yeah. sense. Mm. And those are still yeah. well protected. Yeah. So there's an interesting thing in the U.S. where private industry has gone, mm. has gone the way of the stock market. But the government has maintained a really fascinating pension system mm. that protects mm. itself, but no, no one else. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, the state yeah. state employees work mm. for the state, and, mm. and they are protected by a mm. state organization mm. and state money. Mm. But if you don't work for the state, you don't mm. you, you know you don't have yeah. access to that, yeah. which is a really interesting mm. yeah. setup, which yeah. is totally different yes. from how it how it is in the yeah. UK. So this is a, di- a British context yes. discussion that we're having. Um, and it's it's important to remember as well that the certainly again in the British context the 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 pensions change the changes to the pension scheme are an important but small part of a whole series of changes to higher education. You know, so for example, uh, if you think of uh, the space scales for academics in British universities. Uh, mm-hmm. More in the last ten years, as far as I can remember, pay has not kept up with inflation. So in the last ten years, we've had a pay cut in real terms. Uh, they've been there's been a, a drastic increase in casualization of labor, uh, taking jobs, si- significant academic administrative jobs, which should be uh, uh, in the hands of permanent members of staff are being moved to fixed-term, temporary, hourly-paid members of staff who should, you know, things like um, coordinating postgrad modules, 
I don't think coordinating a post-grad module should be done by anybody other than permanent full-time salaried members of staff. But in multiple institutions, you will see temporary, even hourly paid members of staff being asked to coordinate uh, full-time coordinate post-grad modules. Um, this is in the context of hugely rising tuition fees. Students, most students, are paying more than anyone has ever done for a university degree in Britain. And there is this cumulative marketization, cumulative corporatization, uh, which I certainly do, and I think you, you see as well. That we see the effects of this in our teaching. We see the effects of this in the attitudes to, of our students. The way students stress about what's going to happen after they finish their degree. The way students, uh, many students think the relationship between us and them is a relationship between producer and consumer. And that is not good for us. It's not good for our students. It's not good for the system. Yes. It's what I think is most interesting because, you know, a lot of kind of Americans will sort of look in from the outside mm. and say, um, you know, American students pay huge, mm. huge mm. tuition fees. Americans, um, you know, the, the barrier to education mm. is so great in the U.S., but what's really interesting about the British context is just how quickly mm. Mm. a lot of this has happened. It's mm. really kind of post-2010. And the tuition fee example is a really fascinating one because all of a sudden, students paid a, a small amount, and all mm. of a sudden, within two years, mm. kids who were 15 who'd been thinking about going to university, very quickly, mm their financial situation is completely transformed and their families don't mm. have 15 years to save up for their education yes. or to plan for their education yes. or to kind of think about this is these are the, the conditions within which we operate. Mm. I'm going to go to trade school yeah. or I'm going to get a job. Yeah. I'm not going to go to university. Yeah. All of a sudden, yeah. British kids yeah. have a to are operating yeah. in a totally different world. Yes. And it's really strange. Yes. And especially because it doesn't work that well in the U.S. Yes. It doesn't work very well at all, and student debt in the U.S. is a very serious economic mm, issue, mm, mm. and it, you know that that is the world in which we live. And mm. the British context is changing so fast, and the pay rise issue is one that I find really fascinating as well. Mm. The you know our salaries have gone down significantly, um, and also in real terms, right? Mm. In England, especially, a lot mm. of the universities in England are now offering permanent contracts on lower pay scales. So you have to demonstrate the same amount of work, the same mm. record, um, the same publication output, but you enter the job mm. at a lower pay grade. At, at a time, you know, I said last 10 years, over the same last 10 years, Artway Union has released research either yesterday or today, which shows that on average, vice chancellor, so that's the, the, the heads of the university, their pay pay scales on average has has gone up by 50% from 100-something thousand pounds to 200-something thousand pounds, um, which is huge. Astronomical. Yeah. And they argue, right, you, you know, they, the most vocal um, public-facing ones argue that, you know, they're competing in an, in an international market. Yes. They're competing with American pay. Yes. They're competing with American yes. principals who are making... You know, four hundred, five hundred, mm. six hundred thousand dollars a year. Yeah. Get their own house, their own driver. You know, yeah. these kinds of. Yeah. And if you want to get the best talent, you have to. But it doesn't 
trickle down to us. For yeah, some and, yeah, and and it's yeah the idea that if you want to have the best talent, you have yeah. to pay yeah that that talent yeah a, a similar wage. I yeah. mean, you, it's, yes. it certainly hasn't happened here. No. Some of the universities are you know LSE certainly did kind of has an American facing economics program yes. and, yeah. and recruits people internationally, but it's a bizarre trick of logic that only yes. applies to. Um, I guess management is the the yeah. union term. You mentioned you talked about the different relationships between students and and their teaching staff yeah. and academics and how it, it has become one that is between producer and consumer. Yeah. Which which is quite interesting if you think about it in the logic of a trade union. Yes. Because we we've discussed. I mean, do we do a trade? Yes. Do do we produce a product that yes. is then sold and consumed by people? Yes. And in some ways, if a trade un- for a trade mm. union to operate, it has to operate under that l- yes. that logic. Yes. So, on the one hand, we're saying mm. our relationship with our students is um, diminished. Yeah. That the the kind of complexity mm. and potential of our kind of teaching mm. student mm. relationship is curtailed. Yeah. But on the flip side, in order for us to protect mm. jobs and protect long-term security, mm. we also do operate in this kind of trade union world where yeah. what we make is consumed. Yes, and, and we, I mean, we're not the only sector that, that does that, right? So if you think of the, the British Medical Association being the trade union of, of doctors in Britain, uh, they've gone on strike in the past uh, to protect uh, uh their members' salaries and, and pay and conditions. And pensions, working conditions, working conditions most conditions. recently. Um, and a similar dilemma applies to them. So, you know, it is clear that doctors are doing labor, as it were, but whether they are producing something that their patients are consuming is a, is a, a very different question. And if we would like to think that the relationship between us and our students are not the, not the same as the relationship between a producer and a consumer, then that applies even more to them. You know, the relationship between a doctor and a patient shouldn't be the relationship between a producer and a consumer. Um, and we can we can say the same for civil service servants who, who've gone on strike before. And I think it's, in a sense, it is part of, and we'll come on to this, we'll come on to the the decades of anti-union politics that has taken place in Britain and around the world. But one of the things that that this has led to is the severe limitations on what a trade union can strike for. Yeah, or accomplish. Yes. So if if doctors in Britain want to protest about cuts to the NHS, the National Health Service, they, they are not allowed to do that. They can only strike about pay and working conditions. If we want to strike about the increased corporatization of British higher education, we cannot. The only thing we can strike about is pay pensions and working conditions. In the same way, one, of, one law that cuts absolutely, for me, to the heart of, of union politics, union, uh, the union movement, is the prohibition on, on striking in support of other unions. Mm. Uh, which seems to me outlaws the, the possibility of a general strike. You know, the, if, if doctors tomorrow go on strike, 
lecturers cannot strike and support. Yeah. And that se- that seems to me such a pernicious, such a clever uh, piece of legislation, because what that takes away is any prospect of solidarity. The idea that workers across industries might have solidarity, might be in solidarity with each other, is clearly seen to be so threatening to the system that it has to be made illegal. Well, it is, it right? Is. And, and is. you think about it logically. Yeah. We we come from a very highly educated background yes. and all of our friends are highly educated and work in yes. the similar sectors. So, of course, mm-hmm. doctors and academics would strike in solidarity. Yes. I mean, yes. it makes yes. perfect logical sense. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons, of course, and one, one of the effective ways of breaking a strike mm-hmm. is to diminish the support for a strike. Yes. And the best way to diminish support for a strike, cumulatively, is, and and successive British governments have done this very, very well, is to ensure that the general collective cultural knowledge about what a union is and what strike action looks like and what it is meant to achieve is reduced. So there is this, one might call, violent enforced amnesia, you know, violent erasure of the importance of trade union movements in Britain and around the world in many places. Yes. In the US, we don't really have much in the way of of labor literacy. Hmm. Um, a strike in the US, I mean, it, it's a historical thing. Yes. You think about it when you learn about strikes, you learn about them in terms of the, it's a historical yeah. phenomenon. Yes. Isn't? doesn't yes. happen yes. anymore. Yes. Um, it certainly does, actually. Yeah, I mean, a number of my friends have been involved mm. in um, union activities. Fast food workers have, have gone yeah. on strike recently in America. Which yeah. Is and um, it's, so it, it is a, um, mm. it is a feature, but the story is very much that strikes are something that happen elsewhere mm. or in a different time. Well, and and I've, I've, I've spoken to people, you know, uh, people who might even describe themselves as liberal, uh, certainly well-educated, uh, above-average educated, above in above-average, pay, well-paid jobs, as it were, would say things like, yeah, I can see why the trade unions were needed at one point, but we've got decent rights now, so we don't no longer need trade unions. The idea that those um, rights were not fought for and the idea is that those those rights would not disappear very quickly if someone wasn't carrying on fighting for them. Seems to me to be such a uh, such a misconception, and it's a misconception that is deliberately preserved because uh, the need to maintain the illusion that your employer is on your side. And I think this is something that especially affects our industry because you know major university X sees itself as progressive and ethical and you know community based and looking out for staff and student welfare they seem it, it seems to it, it seems so easy to go I work for a university a university is not the same as McDonald's or Walmart or whoever yeah or a steel factory yes except of course it is 
and the steel factory or McDonald's or Walmart is just as threatened by the, the prospect of unionized labor going on strike as the university is. And the university is just as incentivized to try and break the strike as any of those other institutions, corporations would be. Let's talk about, let's push that because the university, so universities are, they tend to be non-profit. Yes. Uh, some of them are closer to the state than others. Yes. So in the UK, they are heavily subsidized by the yes. government. So yes. we are kind of little um, satellites yes. that are affiliated very yes. closely with the government. We are yes. partially funded. We were we used to be more funded by yeah. the government. Yeah. But also a lot of our research funding comes from research mm-hmm. councils, yes. which is government money. Yeah. And so in, in the UK context, universities really are a wing yes. of the British state. Yes. And in a sense... That kind of makes it seem as if universities are not like Walmart because they yes. don't operate for profit. Yes. And they, they don't generate yes. money yes. to generate wealth yes. at the top. Yes. They are designed mm. as cultural um, hubs. They're designed as um, kind of intellectual spaces where scientific mm. research is mm. done for the good of the state and mm. for the good of the labor market yes. and the labor force where... You know the technologies that doctors and the NHS mm. use mm-hmm. are devised and tested, mm. and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Where the labor force is educated, mm. um, it's it, and in in some ways we do do that. Yes. The, the universities do function; they yes. serve that function, and yes. it's not it's not a myth yes. to say that they don't serve yes. that function. And this is where I, I wonder if if. It is especially difficult for a trade union to operate because it isn't that the university doesn't do those things and just operates Mm. as, you know, a 19th century, you know, scheming landlord. No. It's it's not as if our universities are Ebenezer Scrooges. No. I I think that's that's a very good point. I think I'll I'll say two things in response, if I may. One is that uh, the relationship between employer and the state when it comes to strike action has always been very close. In other words, when a, when a particular employer, depending on how influential that employer is, when a particular employer feels threatened by strike action, they call in the police. They call in the military if they have to. Uh, and the state is has almost always, in, in almost every moment, has been willing and able to support the employer in its actions against its workforce. But you also have the operation yeah. of trade unions within yeah. those organizations. So in yes. the U.S., right, the police union yes. is one of the most powerful unions in the country. Yes. And if we were to take that logic, why is UCU struggling so much hmm. to kind of present itself in a particular way? To hmm. And we, we talk about how limited UCU's been. I mean, they've battled... Hmm. Hmm basically just a war of attrition mm. to try yeah. and maintain pension. I mean, five yeah. years ago, UCU went, went on strike over pensions. Um, more recently, over pay. I think, I think um, so part of the story, and this is not the whole story, but part of the story is, so there's, there's, there's something specific to UCU, I think, and, and the kinds of workers it represents, and there's something that is about trade union the trade union movement more generally. Um, 
we both felt the need when we started this episode to compare the British system to the American system and to say, I know that for many of our American listeners, the things that Britain is, that, that we are striking for or our union is striking for uh, may or may not, is, is stuff that isn't there in America, right? The kinds of changes that are being proposed is normal for America normal for large sections of America and it's certainly normal for large sections of the world and I think that that the need we felt to explain that says so much about the problem a problem that UCU faces which is our salaries are above average for permanent members of staff well above average though of course that doesn't include everyone who, who who's a UCU member um, our pension scheme, even after the changes come through, if they do come through in this way, will probably still be better than many other pension schemes. And there is a, a, a really attractive but really pernicious argument which results in a race to the bottom, which is, how dare you go on strike? You are better off than so many other people. It's the, I always think of it as sort of the adult equivalent of the parents saying, eat your food because they're starving children in Africa. Yeah, if I it's, eat it, they're still yeah, starving. Exactly. It's and if if I don't eat it, they're still starving. So, in other words, and this is something I think, particularly in our sector, and 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 doctors face it as well. The doctors have a, a slightly more obvious claim to claim to legitimacy than we do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think there is a, a a general problem with any workforce who decide to go on strike who are seen collectively, culturally, who are seen as better than better paid than average. You know, we are not miners. We are not steel workers. So that's part of the problem that UCU has. The wider problem that the union, that trade unions have a, as a whole have is this, the, the effect of this demonization of trade unions. Trade unions exist to make things difficult. Trade unions exist to uh, close down shops and, and make sure that you know, only certain number, and it's it's an it's if this is true in Britain, it's even truer in America. I think the idea that trade unions, by their very nature, are corrupt because they interfere with the free market. You know, if you think, I'm, I'm, I'm because I'm, I'm me, I'm thinking immediately of season two of The Wire. You know, the 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 <laughs> the, the, the the idea that the the dock workers are a unionized workforce, therefore they determine who gets work and who doesn't, and the management have no say. Um, I wish I would lived in a world where management had no say over who gets work and who doesn't. You know, it's it's so rare that unions ever achieve that kind of power. Um, and there was a time, regardless of the sector or not, there was a time when trade unions were seen as an important, legitimate part of um, part of the industry, part of employer-employee relations. I have now been an active trade union member for four or five years. I've been, by active I mean member of my local branch committee, I've been a trade union member for probably ten years by now. I And, and this has covered multiple different institutions. I have never been at an institution where the head of the institution, vice-chancellor or equivalent, has ever had a meeting with the trade union. Not a one-to-one -one meeting with the, with the trade union, with any trade union representative. I think if you went back 30, 40 years, 
that wouldn't be the case. You know, I'm never. I'm not saying that the head of the the the, the ma management were ever on the union side. Of course, they weren't. That's the whole point. But there was a collective recognition of the necessity of meeting with and talking of, talking with the trade unions. I don't think that is necessarily the case anymore. Yeah, I'm not not active in mm. the trade union the way yeah. that you are. Um, it, a lot of the work that the union does do is mm. is invisible because yeah. a lot of it is secret and mm. um, takes place on behalf of members mm. um, in an anonymous setting mm. and to protect their privacy. Mm. Um, and also, of course, it protects the employer mm. because it means that no one else sees the activity yes. that the union does on behalf yes. of individuals. Yes. Um, and UCU does yeah. has had a lot of success on mm. behalf of individuals yes. doing casework, yes. which is something that no one ever sees. So yes. when UCU pops up yeah. with a strike mm. vote, mm. it's usually the only time that anyone sees mm. the union mm. unless you have made yeah. use of the union yeah. for your own mm. Um, mm. protection, mm. but no one else ever hears about that. So the union is kind of in a weird position where there are, you know, mm. people running around all the time mm. representing mm. fellow colleagues, representing fellow members, and that work never gets and, and publicized. I, and I think that's what's really interesting is there's so many people I know who are members of the union and have in the past been in positions where they've needed to get help from caseworkers. So the caseworker is someone who represents a member on an individual basis in some kind of workplace negotiation, you know, uh, unfair dismissal, any of those things, any, any complicated, conflicted relationship between uh, a member of staff and management. The member of staff have the right to ask for union representation, and that's what the caseworker does. And what's really interesting is I know multiple people who have in the past benefited from casework representation who are not going to strike. And I think there is a, there is a, and this goes back to a fundamental misunderstanding of what the purpose of trade unions are. Trade unions are there to do casework, absolutely. We, we do casework as and when necessary. But I think very few people who are active in the trade union, trade union movement would see casework as the, the most significant thing. The most significant thing is collective bargaining. That's, that's why trade unions are important, because it, it's the recognition that the workforce gained their strength precisely from being united, from collective bargaining, collective action, all of those things, whether it's at local level or national level. And I think this comes back to what we were saying earlier on in our sector, but in terms of the misunderstanding uh, bit, misunderstanding of the nature of our employer. You're completely right. You know, the university is a charity. Universities do do all of these non non not for profit stuff. You know, arts policy, whatever, ed education more generally. The, the 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 kinds of things that the corporate world does doesn't do. But it is also no coincidence that the university's minister in the British government is not in the education department. The university's minister is in what's called BIS, Business Innovation and Skills. 
I think the it is in the university's interest to present themselves as a charitable organization. They are technically a charitable organization and they do do a lot of work that isn't for profit. But they're also corporations, depending how you define a corporation. They're also, uh, there is, they are invested in uh, hegemonic notions of entrepreneurship, innovation, investment, business, money making. They are, well, I mean, universities sit in the middle of that tension. Yes. And they, they are constantly coming to terms with the fact that they can't quite, they can't quite be businesses, mm. yeah. but they can't quite be educational institutions because, I mean, I think part of this is about the question of what is, what is research yes. and what is research for mm. and, and what does research do, yeah. which kind of brings us back to the question of, is our research a trade? Yeah. And who consumes it? Yes. And and if if as, as many of us who work in the arts and humanities mm. believe mm. that what we produce isn't meant to be consumed, mm. 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 Um, because it it can't really be consumed, mm. then what is it for? And, yeah. and what is its value? Yeah. yeah. Um, and one of the difficult things I think, and and this is a kind of more discursive philosophical mm. argument about the limitations of the trade union. Mm which is that a trade union isn't set up necessarily and the history of trade mm, unions mm. and the successes of trade unions isn't set up to defend mm. our our work as a mm, trade mm, mm, mm. even though mm. you know university employees are some of the, some of the most exploited mm. um, given the kind of we've talked about about academia mm. as a kind of cultural mm. industry before mm, and, mm. and what academia requires of mm. of its mm. members and that is um, a, a feeling of vocation, mm. a, f a feeling of a calling, mm. that your work is is wrapped up with your sense of self and who mm. you are, that you then devote all of your free time and all of your energy, mm. that you can't separate out your work from your personal life, mm. that everything mm. about mm. your personal life becomes kind of fodder mm. for your work, mm. that your teaching is, it isn't just your teaching materials or skills or concepts, mm. You're all, you are also providing yourself to your mm, students in mm -hmm, a way mm -hmm. um you know and when when you stick that into the context of you're making something for people to mm. consume is that yourself you know is mm -hmm, is it mm -hmm. is your, are your students consuming your very sense of self like mm -hmm. and, and that is quite an existential way of mm. talking mm. about what we do but it is certainly how i approach mm -hmm. trying to explain why why unions in intellectual industries and creative mm. industries struggle mm. sometimes mm. because if we can't you know if we can't describe in mm. in economic terms mm. the value of our work and what our trade actually mm. is mm. Mm. how can we create a sense mm. among the wider public that what we do deserves protection by a trade union mm. well that is a question from someone who is is affiliated mm, with mm, the union mm, and is mm, pretty freaked out about pensions mm, and mm, temporary contracts and things, mm, but also I approach these things from mm, a different angle mm, than you just because mm, of our backgrounds. Mm, mm. I mean, I think that 
our work deserves protection. Universe, a university's work research deserves protection, whether or not a, a, a financial value can be put on it. I don't see any other way of defending our work and work and living conditions other than for trade union. Yeah. So it is a kind of it's it is in some ways a mirror of our positions mm. on left wing nationalism. Mm, mm, mm. Say more. Well, that's sort of it. That, that yeah. you you see left wing nationalism as as one of the very few ways of creating change, mm. and I see it as eventually as limited and appropriating. Eventually, mm. is appropriated mm. by by the right once yeah. once it happens. Yeah. And the, for me, the, the trade union is it has to exist yeah. because there is no other way. Mm. But it is fundamentally limited. Yeah. And yeah. it is perhaps because of my background mm. with strikes mm. and trade unions. Mm. Um, and I was in a position where my contract mm. was sacrificed mm. for the sake of others mm. by the trade union. Mm. Um, and we've talked about this, and it's probably mm. time that we talk about how the trade union, one of its limitations is that it requires those that it can provide the least protection to, to sacrifice the most yes. for the sake of collective bargaining and mm. solidarity. Yes. Um, and though, for me, those limitations aren't, aren't placed upon the union externally mm. by the powers of the state and mm. kind of the neoliberal mm. corporations, mm. but are in fact a carryover from mm. how trade unions have been organized. I, I think I think they're for me they're not a, they're not so much imposed on on the trade union in this moment by individual employers or by the state. I think they are pressures imposed on trade unions arising from historic failures in the trade union movement. Right? So um, the the reason why or a reason why so much of uh, so much of the strike action depends on particularly vulnerable employees, whether tempor with temporary contracts or hourly paid members of staff, have to. So much of the trade strike action rests on sacrifices made by them, by people who are more marginalised. And who are not being represented as well or as fully as privileged permanent members of staff is because the trade union has suffered so many defeats in the battles against casualization. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Like, everyone in the trade union believes that casualization is a bad thing. Everybody in the trade union believes that the universities exploit casualized labor by making them do things that permanent members of staff should be doing. Except we have lost, had so many defeats in those battles that we are now in a position where we are having to rely on those casualized members who we have failed individually and collectively in order to win something on pensions. And it's important to remember, you know, it, the, the, the battle against pensions is... Uh, is will in the in the immediate term obviously benefit people 
the the relatively privileged more, but it won't just benefit the relatively privileged more. You know, the 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 person who is on a casualized contract today and might get a permanent contract in in you know three months time will rely on the same pension benefits that we are fighting at the moment to support. So there there is a connection. I think it is absolutely true that the union has not in in every moment been able to fully demonstrate that 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 connection and and sell it as it were but i think it's also true that the extent to which our industry has been casualized over the last few years is absolutely a failure of the trade union movement and i think that's where i'm in, i'm mm. interested in that mm. and i don't i mean i'm t- i'm kind of too mm. nihilistic mm. to to feel totally let down mm. or angry with the trade union. Mm. I'm interested in in that complete failure to mm. deal with casualization. Mm. And to be honest, I mean, the, the casualization of the U.S. higher education mm. industry has been s- complete. Yeah. I mean, it is, mm. it's sh- absolutely bizarre, mm. the situation in the United States. It is, it is so bizarre, it is, mm. f- it is farcical and terrifying. In the U.K., casualization has happened a bit more slowly, mm. more piecemeal mm. has happened in certain ways, but not mm. in other ways. Mm. Um, and it looks it looks different, and mm. it certainly mm. isn't mm. as pervasive. Mm. Um, you know, our, our teaching mm. programs aren't delivered by mm. adjuncts, for example, mm. whereas in many universities in the U.S., yeah. te- entire teaching programs yeah. are delivered by adjuncts. And uh, you know, that is very it, it's yeah. very different. Mm. Um, so, in some ways, you could think of the lab- the trade union is mm. being successful mm. in some ways. But I am interested in, in that failure because it does beg the question of mm. are they going to win this battle? We don't know. Uh, I mean, who knows? Uh, I think that I think there is often a tendency, and I think I notice this tendency particularly when uh, when very important debates about casualization come in is there is a tendency to talk about the union as if it is an external organization that has no relation with individual members. Mm. And of course, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what the union is, right? There is, um, I think, if, if, if it is true, and I think it is, that the union has failed in, has failed in many places, to a large extent, to reverse or uh, uh, halt the casualization, then it is a failure of us, as it were. Do you see what I mean? The union is not a not a them. Yes. And it is true, absolutely true. That doesn't explain all the failures by any means, but it is absolutely true that it is so often so much harder to. Um, to recruit just to recruit members among um, postgraduate tutors, oh, casualized yeah. members of staff, people on temporary contracts, because there are so many pressures on yeah. them not to unionize. Well, I actually quit the yeah. union last year because I couldn't afford to yeah. remain a part of it. I quit because I yeah. didn't have the money to yes. s- to remain a member of the union. Like I, yeah. I had run out of yeah. money, yeah. and I couldn't afford the dues. Mm. And on a twelve-month contract, yes. the union until October required yes. me to pay dues. Yes. In October, yes. in advance of the upcoming strike, yes. and also in recognition of the fact that that mm. temporary contracts mm. can be so financially yes. challenging yes. for people, yes. 
I am now mm. eligible for free membership. Yes. But I wasn't yes. for the first yes. 18 months yes. of my life post-PhD. Yes. yes. Um, and I had joined the union. Yes. But m- many yeah. people don't yeah. because, it, because they can't afford yes. to. Um, and it isn't easy to see, I mean, you know, now, we, unsurprisingly, we've seen a huge increase in, in postgrad tutors joining up now that it's free to join. That makes perfect sense. And there is a, a very strong case to be made that that should have been done before. But there is a sort of chicken and egg situation here, which is, the un- if I, I don't know what else the union can do in order to recruit casualized members. But until we get casualized, more casualized members, more unionization among casualized members, we are going to carry on losing this battle. I wonder, I mean, it, it, having, having seen mm. um, union battles take yeah. place and having mm. been on the chopping block for the sake mm. of other members of the mm. union, um, which is a really fascinating position mm. to to be in, mm. um, and you see the limitations, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. You see, and you see colleagues, mm. you know, feel the kind of pain and mm. and guilt that comes mm. with that. Um, I wonder if some of it has to do with the way that universities have mm. traditionally been structured, mm. which is, I mean, universities are some of the most hierarchical. Mm places to mm, work mm. Um, in terms of uh, of levels mm. and it's not just pay scale it has mm. to do with prestige mm. and it has to do with seniority mm. and it has to do and it's part of this is it has to do with the vocation how mm. much of yourself have you given mm. and how how impactful mm. or effective has that mm. self been mm. um, in a kind of like philosophical mm. or cultural mm. or political mm. sense not just in, a, mm. in an economic mm. sense and th- those kinds of rigid boundaries mm. between the different mm. levels and mm. positions mm. and the way that promotion mm. happens and mm. um, are so strict and mm. so vertical mm. that for a trade union mm. like UCU mm. to be able to represent everyone on, on what is ideally and quite idealistically mm. a single footing, that yeah. everyone is equal. Mm. Not everyone's equal because the structure of the university mm. and the way that that mm. we are organized mm. even like in our minds psychologically mm. the way that we're organized is so based on these mm. old institutional hierarchies mm. that are cultural and social as much as anything mm. how does it, 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 to ask the trade union to break those barriers down is asking mm. too much mm. of the union mm. I don't think it's possible mm. and I mean you were talking about how one of the insidious things that that universities have managed to do is to create administrative roles mm. out of academic roles. So, so various people, especially in positions of middle levels mm. of power mm. or kind of more senior roles, are both they are both management and mm. labor. Mm. They are bo- and mm. how you ask individuals to to sacrifice pieces mm. of themselves mm. in order to either strike or not Mm. is a a tool and a very effective strategy that the university Mm. has used. Mm. But I think they've been able to use that strategy because Mm. of the cultural hierarchies that sustain the university. Mm. We've talked about this before, the student, the PhD Mm. student, Mm. the postdoc, the the permanent contract. Mm. I mean, that barrier is Mm. so Mm. 
powerful, mm. um, not just in financial terms. Mm. And you know, we've discussed doing an episode on the on being able to say no. Mm. That is this mm. in action, mm. and the, the trade union can't. To ask the trade union to break down those barriers is very. But the, pro- the problem then, and I'm not saying it's the system is working as as things stand, but at least a theoretical benefit. In some cases, it happens, and it does. It does happen in some cases. In other cases, it does doesn't ha- don't, doesn't happen. But the theoretical benefit of having senior professors and casualized PhD tutors on the same in part of the same union could, and I, I, I will repeat, in some cases it does happen, result in the senior prof- professors being able to strike using their privilege to fight for something that the casualized labor cannot afford to strike about. Now, in many cases, that doesn't happen, and perhaps in most cases, it doesn't happen. But if you split it up and have a, a, a trade union for the senior professors and a trade union for the casualized labor, would that ever happen? But I don't... That's not what... That's not the... It's interesting that your mind mm. went... That's, yeah. That is the hypothetical yeah. solution that yeah. what I just said went... Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. No, yeah. to treat what? Yeah. No, like the you. I mean, it's, to, to some extent, we already have hmm. universities broken up into different unions, yeah. and I've I've never fully understood why we have an academic union and a union for administrative sort of stuff, yeah. administrative yeah. staff yeah. for janitorial yeah. staff yeah. for our the, you yeah. know the people who keep yeah. our lights on. Yeah. You know, why we battle the universities separately? Yeah. Um, it always seems a bit strange to me, especially mm-hmm. given this idea of all, what we all do is labor, mm-hmm. what we all do mm-hmm. is trade work. Um, it, it's it fascinates me, and I don't mm-hmm. think it works that well mm-hmm. necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you throw in the students' union, and that's a totally mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. thing. But you know that isn't. I don't think that's the no. solution. I think that it's a it's a cultural change at the university level. Mm-hmm. Right where these kinds of mm. social and cultural hierarchies mm. are so embedded, and I think often it's it's often the left wing academics mm. who buy into the social hierarchy the most mm. because it gives their position authority. Yeah, it gives the left wing position that they espouse authority, mm. but they are often the first ones mm. to kind of to say, oh, a teaching fellow needs to take on my teaching duties because yeah. I'm over here, to, I've got this research yeah. grant. So yeah. hire a teaching fellow yeah. for a year and have them coordinate mm. this master's program. Mm. That's mm. how it works. Yeah. And the trade union has no mm. power in any mm. of that. Mm. It, it, the trade union just sits within the system mm. and is required to but deal how, with I them. mean, the, the trade union cannot have power in that system unless they are separate trade unions representing those two people. Do you see what I mean? Like, if you think of the trade union's job is to represent the the interest of its members, the problem is in most of those, or many of those situations, representing one member's member's interest is directly countering another member's interest. Yeah. So the the only way forward then is to have them represented by separate trade unions. Surely. If you keep the trade union 
functioning in the yeah. same way. So, but does a trade union exist to change an in the institution? To use a terrible management term, mm. the institutional culture of a place. Is that the uh, point of the trade union? I only in so far as it reflects the interests of their members. I think I think the job of the trade union is. But only certain interests, right? Pay, pensions, and yes. working conditions. Yes, yes. I think. I mean, we found oh, after after decades of uh, huge cultural shifts against trade unions, some of which some of that was trade unions, the trade union movement's fault. A lot of it wasn't. Uh, we found ourselves fighting a very very narrow battle. That is all we can fight for. That is all we are allowed to fight for. Um, we can, we, you know, um, the ECU has organized campaigns against casualization. They, they, we will carry on doing that. Uh, but it is clear that it is not, that there are certain members who are m m much less willing than other members, shall we, shall we put it that way, to fight for casualization. And they're much more willing to fight for pension rights, which are more directly affecting them. I think from the anthropological perspective, you mm. see the trade union as the source of change, and I see the trade union as part of a wider system. No, I, I, I think it depends what you mean by change. I, I mean, you know, if you, if you think like I've, I've you know, said on, on the podcast before that I, I, I identify with certain kinds of revolutionary politics, I don't see the trade union as a revolutionary movement. I don't, I don't see the job of the trade union as changing the system. I see the job of the trade union as improving the conditions of the of the workforce and uh, fighting for rights that we don't have and protecting the rights we do have uh, on on uh, primarily a collective level but also individual level when it's needed. Which I guess mm. is is what I also see that mm. ultimately the trade union mm. can't mm. and you know shouldn't be expected to no, because it, it is incapable yeah. of changing the hierarchies of our institutions. Mm. But I see the hierarchies as being one of the reasons why mm. the exploitation of labor exists at the trade union yes. exists to, and, to and, fight. And, and, and so I see it as a kind of circular a circular problem. But, but I see, I, so for me that's the difference between a trade union and a, a political party with a class-based ideology. Right, that that for me is the difference. Yeah, the Labour Party. The Labour Party, Communist Party, Socialist Party, whichever whichever political party you're thinking of. Um, I think the job of change of of upending, erasing, revolutionising socio-economic hierarchies, whether in the workplace or out, is ultimately the job of political parties, not trade unions. Political movements, shall we say. Yeah, political yeah. movement. Yeah. Interesting. And trade unions have to be a part of that political movement, absolutely. And they are in the yeah. US. The, a, lot yeah. of the, a lot of the debates and, and activist movements are mm. about unionizing or... And they are in the UK as well, you know, on, yeah. on, a, very ba on a very basic level. A large proportion of, of let's say, the Labour Party funds come from unions. Uh, union members giving money to the Labour Party. Um, so, 
but I don't think that is primarily the job of the trade union. Anyway, can we stop there? Yeah. Um, hope that was of use or, or, or of interest. Are you striking? I am striking. I'm Tell us in striking. the comments if you are joining in the strike. Or if you're not, and why not? Yeah. Um, let us know if you have any questions, if you have disagreements. Um, tweet at us. Facebook us. We're especially interested in different university approaches mm. to the strike because they yes. are not all dealing with the strike mm. in the same way. Mm. Um, and we have our own institutions mm. models, but yeah. I'm quite interested to see mm. how the different universities yeah. deal with this. Yeah. Good. Thanks a lot. Uh, we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Vichardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be?